0: Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle within me the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O oh God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So let me just state the obvious: we've all been on a roller coaster ride this last week, haven't we? And that doesn't account for the roller coaster we've been on as a country for, for several years now. And it is also important to say here that all of us, all of us in this country, regardless of our political affiliation or religious background, have experienced this roller coaster ride, being tossed to and fro, and going up the hill, and being scared as we come down the hill. While many people celebrated the election last night, many also grieved and continued to protest against the outcome. And interestingly, I think today's gospel reading has something to say to us about a way forward. Initially, the reading has some challenging elements. Who knew the bride and groom would be delayed? And I just want to point out that one of the early translations of the text actually does not limit. The story to just the groom returning. It is a wedding story, and there is a groom and a bride, and the two of them are scheduled to return to the banquet hall where they will share a feast with their wedding attendants that in this translation recall the bridesmaids. So the first question is what delayed them? And of course, if you know anything about weddings, it could be anything. They could have just stood around too long after the wedding, saying, talking to their friends and family members. Or it could be anything that delayed them on the road back to the wedding banquet hall. The second question is, why don't the wise wedding attendants share their oil with the food? Well, there's something to be said there about preparation and being prepared and where there are boundaries. On generosity. Now, that's a whole different sermon that I'm not going to preach today. But you stay awake and alert. Maybe I'll get to it at some point. The third question is, why weren't the foolish wedding attendants admitted to the celebratory wedding feast once they returned? I mean, what's the harm there? They now have oil. They can share in the lighting of the banquet hall. And why ever would the penalty for being late to the banquet be that the groom says to those who are late, "Truly, I tell you, I do not know you." Our initial concern is that we read this and think, "Well, if I don't plan, if I don't prepare well, I will be among the foolish." And Will Jesus, will God say to me, truly I tell you, I do not know you? That's what we tend to think. And that's, for many people, how this text has been preached for many, many years. That's often how we read parables, isn't it? And it is a fair question. We see that Jesus is the groom and the wedding attendants are us, right? Of course, that sets up a scenario of some people are in and some people are out, which sort of goes against our more progressive understanding of the Christian faith that God welcomes all, wise or foolish. This view perpetuates an us-and-them mentality. The very thing that we are struggling with in our country today. The us and the them. The left and the right. The right and the wrong. However, what if we take a look at this parable in the context in which the writer of the Gospel of Matthew is writing? At chapter 25, we are drawing near to the end of the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Remember, Matthew is expected, the writer of Matthew was believed to have been a Jew who was writing for for Jewish listeners and trying to get his listeners to understand that the Messiah, whom they have waited on all their lives, has finally come. And that Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, is actually that Messiah. As we draw to the near to the end of Matthew's story, we begin to hear more talk about Jesus' death, And in the next couple of weeks, we will hear additional stories that point to what is called the parousia. Parousia is a word that literally translates to presence or the essence that has come alongside, which is interesting, isn't it? That's not nearly as frightening as what we think about when we think about the second coming. Remember that the Gospel of Matthew is believed to have been written and circulated in the first century sometime around the year 80 to 90. So 80 to 90 years after the event called the resurrection, um, they're finally addressing not only Jesus' life and death and resurrection, but what is happening now. As with many followers of Jesus at that time period, there was a belief that Jesus would return and he, as he had promised and redeem the earth and all creation and all people. That the prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will come into fruition. And now they wait. They wait yet again as they have been waiting for years for this Messiah to return we know about waiting, don't we? We're not very good at it. It would seem that this parable and those that follow it were, were attempting to explain the delay of Jesus' return and how Jesus' followers were supposed to live in the meantime. You know, I love that word, the meantime. We think of it as a waiting period, but Take those two words apart, and it's a mean time, right? And they were living in a mean time. So the question was, how are we to wait? How are we to be as we wait? Equally important to remember as we look at this parable is that it's a parable. And parables are designed to make a point. In fact, many parables were intended to shock or surprise the listeners in order that the teachings and the message would be received and not forgotten. Or, as Jesus instructs the disciples and other listeners at the end of the parable, keep awake, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Perhaps that instruction, that challenge, is just as important to us today. I want to remind you of a few things that have happened in the last few years. In January of 2017, women and their supporters took to the streets to march and say that they were not in favor of violence against women and they were not in favor of hatred and injustice. It was breathtaking for those who attended, and it was breathtaking for all who watched. In 2018, we watched as refugee children were separated from their parents, and still more than 500 of those children remain separated. In August of 2018, we witnessed the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally that showed those on the alternate right coming and protesting, with torches burning, reminiscent of the Ku Klux Klan. And I had pastor colleagues who went out to meet them and knelt before them in order to try to stop them. In January of 2019, the President of the United States was impeached, and in August of that same year, there were two mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio within less than 13 hours of each other and claimed the lives of at least 29 people and wounded more than 50. In February of 2020, we saw the onset of the COVID-19 virus in the United States. And then in May of 2020, we witnessed the killing of George Floyd and, unfortunately, so many other African American people killed before and after that. All the while, a contentious national election took place, and now more than 238,000 people in the United States have died of COVID 19. In all of that, something happened in this country. I tell you this because I'm convinced that in the aftermath of all these events, we began to see an awakening of the American public on both sides of the political line. We have seen marches, we have witnessed protests, we have witnessed parades. We have seen violence and peace. And now we live in the wake of that election in which more people voted than any other time in our country's history. 66% of eligible voters voted more than any percentage of that nature since 1908. Something is happening in this country. And what we have to say right out is that the vote indicates a deep and continuing split in our country. You know, you've listened to it, Several million people voted, and we are split very closely. The question is can we repair the breach? Can we, not just our political leaders, but can we as a people repair this breach? Can we, as our black siblings say, stay woke? Can we continue to uh, pay attention? to the climate crisis, um, rising racism in our country, the rise of the alternate right? Can we still pay attention to the immigrant children on our border? Can we stay woke enough to do something about this breach? And I want to say that the Church of Jesus Christ and our church has a role to play in the healing of the soul of America. America. Diana Butler Bass in her book Practicing Congregations describes what it means to be an intentional church. She writes that such congregations are not adequately described as liberal or conservative, left or right. They combine intentional Christian practices and Christian formation with service and justice emphasis. Another way to describe this third way of being a congregation, not left or not right, would be as a congregation that is rooted in faith and engaged in the world. In congregations like these, spirituality is real, worship is vital, God is alive, and people are engaged in practicing and expressing and living their faith in their vocations and relationships, in service and advocacy on behalf of the poor and marginalized. These are congregations whose primary identity is neither left or right, liberal or conservative, but Christian. The reference points for that kind of church are scripture, word, and sacrament. Life in the community and a social critique informed and shaped by all three. Our reference points aren't democratic or republican and we are not churches that care only or even primarily about either personal transformation or the public square. Both are essential. Both need to be worked on. And so my question is, can we, new church, be that kind of church? And if so, how do we do it? And you can bet I have an answer for that. I want to take another page from Diana Butler Bass, who wrote a book called Great Home. I would argue that our best path toward that kind of transformation as individuals and as a church would be to continually and constantly practice being grateful. Think of it. If we practice being grateful as individuals, if we practice being grateful within our families, if we practice being grateful within our circle of friends, and if we practice being grateful, especially within our church, how might that give us the ability to truly live as Christians and not in our political pods, not in our labeled pods, but as followers of Jesus? Wouldn't that practice grant us courage, grant us wisdom for the facing of this hour? Wouldn't that give us the ability to cross the lines of difference in order to recognize our similarities? Wouldn't that grant us the compassion to love others and give us hope for our broken world? And I believe it is our responsibility as Jesus' followers to be the first. To be the first to reach out. To be the first to build the bridges that will heal us. One cautionary word. It would never be appropriate for us to do all of this if there was abuse involved from others as we tried to build bridges. There sometimes needs to be boundaries. Crossing the lines of difference in the days of Jesus, the days of the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, would surely have been risking one's life. Crossing the lines of difference today could possibly lead to the same thing, though less likely. But just as Jesus' disciples did after his resurrection, it is important for us to start They transformed the world, and there is no reason why we shouldn't do. So wherever you start, it is important to hold together two qualities, these two qualities, and they don't always go together well. We need to have urgency and patience. We have to get on this right now, and we have to work to become a new people and a new congregation with a great sense of urgency, and yet we must be patient. And be patient with each other because this is tough, demanding work and it doesn't happen overnight. We must be patient with our leaders as they try to learn and grow. We must be patient as old structures give way to new things. And we don't quite know what the new ones are. Do you hear all the new talk? It fits so well with us as a new church. Doing this work means that we don't have the answers in advance. We are learning as we go. and We are leaning on Jesus. Arland J. Holtgren suggests that keeping faith includes care of the earth and making peace for the sake of future generations. It is necessary to plan for the long haul, he says. Remain faithful, be wise, and stay strong. Now, note the difference, of course, between making peace and simply avoiding conflict. Holgren reminds us that our faith sees the end not as the end, But as the doorway to the new, the new age, the new creation, we can trust, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that we will be with the Lord forever. This, for us and for all creation, is finally the great good news of God. My friends, we are invited right in this very special time to stay woke. And then, like the Hebrews who were learning what it meant to be Israel, during their long journey in the wilderness. And like the church in the book of Acts, learning what it meant to be the church, we are in a time of new learning. Then we shall come to see this new time not as a time of inevitable decline or disarray, but as a new time of learning, of deepening faith and of great and godly adventure. So be, care, be grateful. Stay woke. Then Jesus Christ will have truly come again. Thanks be to God. Amen.